Welcome to Just Fucking Metal, your weekly journey down the metal rabbit hole. We have the stories, the bands, and the metal you love. So step right up, because it's time for Just Fucking Metal. Hey everybody, welcome back to Just Fucking Metal. We have an extra special show today. We have Terry Dunn from Banshee, the founding member of Banshee, still rocking, still rolling. So we're gonna go, we're gonna go through some questions on Banshee's formation, the music industry, what's up now, and uh just have a good time. We're we're really glad and I'd like to thank you for coming, uh, Terry. Super, super cool. Uh really appreciate you taking the time out for us. Well, and no problem, guys. Awesome. Glad to be here. Yep, appreciate it, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. Terry, thanks for coming aboard. I got a couple questions to kick off, but before I start my questions, my sister-in-law came over the other day and she mm-hmm. brought a tape of yours. And in the liner notes of that tape, it said, thanks to Julie Satolovich, which is my stepsister's or right. my sister-in-law's right. name. And so it's a very small world. She was very excited that uh, we were going to have you on the show. So it should be, should be exciting. All right. So, Julie. <laughs> and and we, she's cool. And we will expect just fucking metal to be in the liner notes of your next album. So go on. <laughs> no pressure. No problem. No, no problem. I mean, if it happens, it's fine. It's whatever. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, let's start off with a couple of questions. So um, let's go way back to when you were getting started in music. So what were like some of your um, musical influences in general music, but then also who were your like guitar influences? Mm-hmm. Oh man. Um, I would say probably I came from kind of a musical family, but I think the first rock and roll stuff I heard, I was like 11 and I heard uh, be my lover by Alice Cooper. radio <laughs> it's, i'm old um and you know that really wow you know i heard that i was like fuck oh, this is killer you know and i asked my sister who who's that woman and she goes that's alice cooper because <laughs> I, I, I she was alice cooper so i thought where's the girl in the band who's what does the girl play <laughs> so uh anyway that was kind of my first you know um influence you know i guess the first thing that I was influenced by. And then I decided I wanted, wanted to play guitar after that. I, I started out playing bass and uh, I just remember, uh, you know, getting my bass guitar and going out in the garage and listening to, uh, uh, what's that sound? Radar Love. trying to play the bass riff the radar love and then i heard the guitar come in and i was like you know what i can hear the guitar better so you know i think i'm going to play guitar so i switched from bass and went to guitar and really the early influences were really ted nugent you know believe it or not i learned 
how to do, I learned my vibrato and my control from Ted Nugent, yeah. you know, and I remember going and seeing, seeing him play. And I remember rush opening for him. I remember mm. many times in Kansas city going and seeing him play. So that was kind of like, he was one of my early influences. Then I got, got introduced to rush. And of course, Eddie Van Halen, you know, uh, yeah, but I'd say the guitar players that influenced me the most were, I mean, you know, of course I was into Randy Rhodes, but he came later. So, but Nugent, uh, Michael Schenker, you know, I was, I'm a huge UFO fan. Um, so he was a pretty big influence and Alex Lifeson. Um, and then there's just so many, you know, after that, you know, it's kind of hard to, but those are the ones pretty much I'd say I cut my teeth on, you know, that I, mm -hmm. I kind of helped me develop my own style. Um, and uh, so those are probably my main influences, you know, in the early days. I didn't really start getting serious about it till. I mean, you know, I started playing seriously probably around 13 or 14. And then there was a spurt of learning, you know, between that time and around 16 or 17, where all I did was just fucking play my guitar. You know, I mean, I 24 hours a day, that's all I did, you know, practice. And, uh, and of course, somebody new would come along, you know, they'd make me want to just keep playing even more. I mean, you know, when Van Halen came out, that was, you know, Eddie was just so fucking amazing, you know. I mean, who, what guitar player could not be influenced by that guy, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. want to play like him. Although my style was quite different uh, than him. But, uh, God, you know, I did learn a lot of, a lot of cold stuff and a lot of tricks and things, you know. And so what, when you started playing guitar, Terry, um, did you take lessons from someone or were you just self-taught? I, I took lessons for about, I don't know, six months at Jenkins Music in Antioch Mall in Kansas City. <laughs> but yeah, me and my my best friend, Kevin Lear, uh, I went to school with him. I've known him since first grade, you know, and he played drums, you know, so we kind of did this thing together, you know, he was, we were going to put band together and, you know, and we actually, we, before we did the lessons, we put something together in seventh grade that really sucked. <laughs> um, I took lessons for six months and I learned basic shit and my sister's boyfriend showed me some, some stuff. And then I just I reached the point where the, the teacher I had was just, uh, he was an acoustic guy, you know, he looked exactly like Cat Stevens, you know, <laughs> I his name, but I mean, he was exact, he looked exactly like Cat Stevens. Wow. And uh, he, he taught me some stuff, you know, uh, American Band by, you know, um, fuck, who's the band that does that? Grand, <laughs> Grand Funk. Grand Funk. Grand Funk. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, yeah, I took lessons for a while and then I just kind of outgrew him because I wanted to learn more metal stuff and he was more of an, uh, acoustic player you know he taught lessons with an acoustic and i thought yeah, this is weird you mentioned in seventh grade you started a band with your drummer buddy and yeah was that your first band and then if if that is the case can you tell me how many bands you've been in and, and what some of those bands were through the years yeah well the drummer's name was kevin lear he's since passed away he was a good friend of mine and um like i said we were you know we'd known each other since i think kindergarten or first grade so and uh so him and me put some different bands together we had a little band called magnum together for a while we did like santa caligon out in independence oh nice and we had colonel billy colonel billy out there with his rubber chicken you know and <laughs> wow <laughs> we got magnum we got magnum coming up magnum. <laughs> and i was singing and we were doing like ted nugent and rush and uh so that was kind of like my our my first little band and then after that, uh, I got out of high school and uh, we were jamming in a bar and I was approached by a guy named Tim McCorkle. I don't know if you guys know, remember Grand Max? They were, a, they were like 
in the early seventies, they were Chris Fritz kind of a pet band. And he was getting them opening shows with Rush, with lots of bands. They opened for, uh, uh, what's that band? Uh, Something Tuna. You know what I'm talking about? Hot Tuna? Hot Tuna. Yeah. Opened for Hot Tuna, and they opened for Rush a bunch of times. And so Tim asked me if I wanted to play with Grand Max. And and I'd seen him play, you know, and I was impressed because they had giant amp stacks and (laughs) flash bombs. And I remember seeing them opening for Ted Nugent, and they set off a – an explosion that like knocked me down. I was on the front row. <laughs> and so, you know, I was like, man, this is cool. I was like 19, 18. Right. 19. And, you know, I felt bad leaving Kevin behind, but I went and played with Graham Max. And this was about probably not about 79. We got a record deal with LAX records and they had war and Tanya Tucker, Lee Oscar from war, the harmonica cat. And so I was in L.A. in 1979. Not many people know about this. You know, I mean, it was never discussed. I was in L.A. in 1979, man. You know, we were rehearsing in a a sound studio right next to the Sunset Grill. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to go to the Sunset Grill and hang out and eat there, man. It was fucking incredible. With the original owner, this really old dude was cooking. And we were right next to Sunset Grill. So we'd go there and get lunch every day. And uh, we were in this soundstage that was, they did some Charlie, used to do Charlie Chaplin movies in and shit, you know? And we, the, and this is really a cool story because the, the guy that was running the, the board for us worked for the Osmonds. <laughs> and he was telling us all these crazy fucking stories about, you know, the shit, weird shit that Marie Osmond would get. She'd get little vials of semen and oh, you know, wow. all this gross shit. Yeah, guys would send her this you know, sick shit. And uh, so he I'm, was, I'm sending a mason jar, dude. I'm sending yeah, a fucking there, mason yeah, jar. Yeah, right. <laughs> what was wrong with that guy? He used to come in, man, and listen to me play. And he, you know, it was so funny. He'd come and go, yo, well, I'm bad motherfucker. You know? <laughs> he, he's so fucking cool, man. And I got to play through his Fender Twins. He used old Fender Twins. And so he let me play through them. And that was really cool. And then uh, Tim Bogart was in there, too, rehearsing. So every day we'd go in, Tim Bogart would be over there, you know, from back Bogart and Apathy. Tim Bogart, man, phenomenal fucking player. So we'd go in there and hang out and smoke joints with him and listen to him play. So that was kind of the early shit that I did. We were there for about a year and we did shows all over L.A., Madame Wong's East and West. And we did uh, different clubs around L.A. And uh, but the weird thing was, here's what was so fucking weird about it, man. We didn't take Charlie Nicky as our singer from Kansas City. We ended up getting out there and we were with LAX Records and they go, man, we got this guy that we think would be great for the band. His name was Elon Butler. And he was this black cat that used to play with the animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy's name, something in the animals. Eric Carmen. Eric Car- Yeah. I think that's it. Eric. No, wait, what'd you say? Eric, Eric Carmen and the animals. Eric Burden, isn't it? Burden. Yep. Yeah. That's who it was. Nice. So the good, funny, good the weird thing was though, this singer was black. <laughs> And this is 1979, man. <laughs> and so we're like, okay, you know, we'll try this, man. Steve Gold and Jerry Goldstein were the guys that ran the record company. And they were known as just these, these fucking raging cokehead maniacs. I mean, <laughs> we, and we were staying down on Alta Loma Boulevard in a high rise in the guest rooms. Suzanne Plachette lived there and all these famous people. And I had my piece of shit Oldsmobile wrecked. Sitting next to a Mercedes and a Rolls Royce, I was sitting between them. And the parking guy, this black cat, he loved us because we we were so trashy, and it pissed off everybody in the building. Because you know this, the, we'd walk out and see our car 
our piece of shit. Look at our <laughs> low pattern, man. You know, next yeah. to this fucking these fucking beautiful, expensive hundred thousand um, more than that cars. And so anyway, that's where we were staying. Um, and so we had this black singer, and we went out. We bla- opened for Black Oak, Arkansas. We did a show with them. And uh, Elon, our singer, his name was Elon, and he wore this silver jumpsuit that zipped up the front. <laughs> nice. I mean, something from Parliament and the Funkadelics, dude. Yeah, nice. And, and we're like, man, dude, he can't fucking wear that. We're these white boys from Kansas City, all dressed and meddled out. And we got this black singer in a silver fucking jumpsuit coming out, man. And it was, I mean, it kind of worked. I mean, he sounded pretty good on the music. Yeah. Um, but uh, make a long story short, LAX went under, our checks started bouncing. We'd go to the bank and there was no money. So we just told him, man, you know, fuck it, man. We're going to, we were going to, we moved back to Kansas city. I moved back. I should have stayed in LA really. Um, that was my big mistake, man. I should have fucking stayed in LA, but I was, you know, I was young. I was never been away from home. I was like freaking out because, you know, I'm in the big city, man. It's like, you know, like that video of Axl Rose getting off the bus, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I felt. And, what, like, you know? and what, what year did you move back to Kansas City? About eighty. About eighty. Um, right, right when everything in LA blew up. Cool. <laughs> Me and Tim are walking up to the Rainbow, and we're right, right next to the Sunset Marquee, and there's a tour bus up there. And I got long fucking hair down to my waist, and Tim's got blonde hair. So it's dark out. I'm taking a piss by the bus, and this guy comes around the bus with. Frizzy here and he goes, Getty, what the fuck are you doing? He was fucking with me. He thought I was Getty Lee. <laughs> and it was uh, Howard Unger leader, their light man. Oh, and wow. he recognized oh, and he recognized Tim because Tim, when before I was in Grand Max, Tim, they opened for Rush a bunch of times. So Howard said, hey, man, what's going on, man? And so he took us into the Sunset Marquee and they were playing the next night at the fucking forum. Rush was. So we get on the elevator and. Uh, we get on the elevator with the guys from Bare Naked Ladies. Mm-hmm. Remember that band? Yeah. And they thought, they thought and he goes, they go, who are you guys with? And and Howard goes, oh, we're Rush. And so this guy thought that I was Getty Lee. Tim, and Tim was Alex Lifeson. Lifeson. So they're like, oh, man, hey, man, we love your music, blah, blah, blah. So we're just, we didn't say anything, man. We're just like, okay. So we went up to Howard's room and smoked a joint. And, and he got us fucking pa- tickets and p- passes the next night at the forum, this was the moving pictures tour. Nice. Oh, nice. And so we got to go to the after party in the main ballroom with Rush. And we're sitting nice. at a table right next to Rush. And Getty Lee came up and m- introduced himself. We talked to him. And then Alex Lifeson came up. Neil Peart was pretty kind of quiet. And they were all sitting on their table. And we're sitting next to them. And it's just like such a surreal fucking moment, you know? Yeah. I'm 19. I'm sitting next to my idols, you know, and it's like, what the fuck do you say? You know, I mean, <laughs> looking back on it now, it's like, God, I wish I had a camera or a tape recorder or something. <laughs> so anyway, we got to hang out with them and see the show. We had like almost front row seats and uh, it was just fucking amazing. So that's my rush story. It was nice. pretty cool, though. Nice. That was just one one of a few cool stories. I got a great Van Halen story. I can t- Eddie Van Halen story, too, if you want to hear it. I was really cocky. I was only 24 at the time. And I go in the room and his manager let, let me go in. Cause he knew I had some Coke. No, <laughs> I no longer do cocaine, by the way. I mean, I've, been clean, I've been clean for seven years. I don't even drink, man. I don't smoke pot. I don't do anything. Um, but you know, I did have a 
problem with drugs back then, but you know, who didn't, man, you know, it was a rock yeah. band. Um, so anyway, I had a, like a quarter ounce of Coke, man. And I, the manager goes, you got some Coke? I go, yeah. <laughs> and so I showed him the bag and he grabs well, me yeah, and he takes me to the door and knocks on it. And Eddie opens the fucking door and smiles and pulls me in the room. And Eddie goes, uh, so you're here with me and my wife now, man. He knew I had the blow. And he goes, so what are you going to do for me, man? You know, he, he wanted some Coke. And so I go, <laughs> I'll give you five bucks. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he grabs me and throws me out of the room. He goes, who is this guy, man? You know, and his wife started laughing. I mean, you know, I was 24. I didn't know. I was just trying to be funny. You know, I wasn't trying to be a dick. Mm-hmm. I thought it was, I thought it was funny, which it was. And she thought it was funny. So he threw me out of the room and the manager goes, what happened? And I told him, he goes, oh, fuck. He goes, did you show him? Did you, did you t- show him you had some blow? I said, no, he didn't give me a chance. He threw me out. Yeah, that's exactly what I did. So we knock on the door again. And I'm going like this. And he pulls me back in and I go, don't worry, man. I'm not a hit man. And he goes, in that case, he pretends like he's going to hit me. And then he rips this huge fucking fart, man. Wow. And Valerie, Valerie, Valerie goes, oh, Eddie, that's disgusting. And he's laughing his ass off. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, I got to go in, I got to hang out with him. Uh, I got to play his 1958 Flying V that's been on the cover of multiple magazines. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's in a case at his house, you know, a yeah. glass case. Nice. And uh, there's a story behind that. He got that for a steal, but I got to play that fucking guitar, man. I'm wow. just 20, this 24 year old kid. I'm in a room with Eddie Van, fucking Van Halen yeah. and you know, him and his wife. And, and, you know, I got to play one of his other strats and, you know, it's funny. I'm sitting there playing my guitar or playing his guitar. And he goes, man, you're pretty good. Where'd you learn how to play? And I go, uh, kind of here and there. He goes, yeah, probably fucking from me. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, yeah, man, you're right. I learned a lot from you. So, you know, I'm in there for probably 30 minutes maybe. And we're just talking and he lets, he pulls this guitar out. And I know, man, I knew what it was, you know, a flying V case, you know, you know what it's going to be. Yeah. But I didn't think it'd be a 58. I mean, who gets to play a 58 fucking flying B in the first place? Unless you go to Norm's Rare Guitars or something. And even then, they probably don't let the customers play those guitars. Yeah. Yeah. So I got to play that. And I was just like fucking blown away, man. And then I, he'd show me how he double picked, you know, his, his, you know, middle finger and thumb thing that he does, you know, on double mm-hmm. picking. So anyway, that's my Van Halen story. It was great though, man. That's like those two stories. I mean, that's, those are two of my favorite stories because I got, you know, just the fact that I got to hang out with my favorite musicians, you know, and talk to them and be with them on a personal level, you know, not just, Hey man, you know, absolutely not not standing in a fucking meet and greet line, you know, and walking by and shaking their hand and they don't give you the time of fucking day. Yeah. That's that's kind of, that's kind of, that's kind of the deal now that, that, that I don't like about the, the music scene now is we used to get, we used to be able to get access to artists that we really liked. Right. And we would hang out, right. we'd, we'd be at the bus. They would talk to you for 30, 40 minutes. We did that with yeah. countless fans that were on tour and it was always a cool yeah. thing. And now it's like, pay $150 to shake my hand and get a picture with me. And I'm like, yeah. fuck that, fuck that dude. No, I, I've already, oh, shit, been, man. I, I've already dude, paid I you 150 bucks many times. <laughs> many. Right. <laughs> dude, man. I was like 15, dude. And I was back. I was outside at Memorial Hall talking to Black Sabbath. They were sitting in a limo <laughs> oh, wow. waiting to leave. And me and my friends were talking to a man. And Ozzy was sitting in the middle, man. He had his platform shoes on. This is like 74 or five, maybe. Wow. And he's like, let's get this fucking show on the road. <laughs> you know? And 
I talked to Tony Iommi and got his autograph and shit, man. I'm just this kid, man. I'm asking him stupid questions like, how old are you, man? <laughs> he's about, he says he's 98. <clears throat> do, you miss, so, do, you, do you miss that one finger or no? Not so yeah, much? Right. <laughs> yeah, I didn't go there, man. <laughs> hey, will you, will you sign, will you sign these, this pair of sheet metal shears for me? <laughs> right. Nice. Oh, man. Very inappropriate. So Terry, so, how did uh, can can you tell me how Banshee came to be? Yeah, um, I when I got back from LA, I'll just go back a little little bit so you get the whole idea of what happened. So after the LAX thing, you know, with Graham Max, I came back to Kansas City and I was doing nothing. And my sister was married to this guy named Johnny Rocker. They were looking for a guitar player, and he wanted to know if I'd join the band. So. I did. It was really cool because it was it was cover tunes and a couple of originals, but it was kind of my chance to be in like Ozzy or Kiss because they had this giant uh, stage made out of like sheet metal to make it look like castle walls. Mm-hmm. Nice. And uh, they were doing and they were doing all the music I liked, man. Rat, Ozzy, all this cool shit. Frodo became very popular in Kansas City. We did a grad day at Worlds of Fun, dude. And it was like twenty five hundred, three thousand kids, man, screaming like crazy, you know. In the little amphitheater. Fuck yeah. Yeah, the little amphitheater, dude. And it's like, this is 1984. It's funny. Me and Eric, Petska, the drummer, are standing backstage doing bumps of coke, man, and looking at all these kids going, God, if they only, if their mothers only knew. He's so pissed at us right now. So, so anyway, I was in Frodo for, for a while. It was good money and it was fun. We dressed up in black leather and, you know, all this, you know, the, the, the fucking studded armbands and belts. And so, like I said, it was a fun band to be in. You know, I had a really good time and I was making good money and, and, you know, partied. It's like every time, you know, we do a set, we go backstage and somebody would lay out giant fucking lines. And so, mm. you know, I was wired out of my fucking mind most of the time when we were playing. I did Frodo for a couple of years and then about 1986, the band performing one night called the lick band. It was Tommy Lee flood from the lick. And I wanted to put a new, I wanted to put an original band together, you know, and I was looking for a singer that, you know, had a really good voice and, and sounding like Dio was a huge plus, you know, to have that, that sound. Yeah. So I, I saw Tommy and I thought, man, this guy's fucking good. You know, he looked good. He had a good image, his great voice. And so I got a hold of this chick that knew the band and she had him call. I gave her my number. I don't remember exactly. I don't know if I, she gave me his number I, or, or she, what, how the, the connection happened. I just know he called me or I called him. We got in touch with each other. And I told him, I said, you know, I want to put an original band together. I really like your singing. Do you want to come down to Kansas City and, and put something together? And uh, I didn't know this, but, but right around that time, I found out he was fired from the Lick Band. So he was kind of available, you know. Uh, so he ended up coming down to Kansas City, but he wanted to use his guitar player, who was Chuck Hopkins, uh, and, um, you know, to play bass. And I was reluctant to do that because he was a guitar player and I just wanted a good bass player, somebody who was already acclimated to bass, you know. You know, so I was kind of, I said, okay, I'll try it out, you know, but if I'm not happy, you know, you know, so Tommy was said, okay. And, and so him and Chuck came down to Kansas city and that's when we got the practice hall next to one, uh, seventh heaven. And we started rehearsing there. And like I said, uh, the, I had pretty much all the guitar parts and all the arrangements for the first five songs, which, you know, was crying the night. Yeah. So, uh, so we went in there and started rehearsing and wrote those five songs, man, and put the EP out. You know, we put out 500 copies on our own. 
and those sold out like quick, you know, and then, you know, the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, you want me to continue? I didn't know if you were going to ask me if you yeah. want to know. Yeah. So I got a couple follow up questions there. You know, so you guys, what year was that when you guys formed Banshee? That was 86, I believe. Okay. It was either 85 or 86. So a good time to be in a metal band. That was right. Yeah, it was was great. Yeah. You know, I mean, we were, we created quite a buzz, you know, around town because I had a reputation in town already. Because when I was in Grand Max, you know, we did, we, we opened for Pat Travers at Memorial Hall. And that was a really big show for me. It was my first big show. And so everybody knew who I was, you know, in Kansas City. So when they heard that I put a new band together, they were excited, you know. Oh, and then when also a drummer, Kent Burnham was a drummer in with one of my students. He was playing drums in a band called Crib Keeper. And I heard him play. So I got I got Kent the audition for the band and he became our drummer, you know, after after we heard him play. So that's how the band got came together. Uh, we did the EP, you know, as you know, if you saw any of our shows at the Uptown, we, we played, you know, I think we did our first show in 86 and a uh, really good crowd, man. You know, we had quite a reputation going for Absolutely. us, man. Oh yeah. We, we sure we were, you know, we were having uh, warehouse parties, man, at our practice hall down <laughs> off Minnesota Avenue, Kansas. Oh, yeah. We had these hellaciously huge fucking parties, man. And, we had a Halloween party, man, and it got so big that the police finally came down and and fucking broke us up. They were cool about it, but you know, um, we just we loved those parties, man, because yeah. we made good money and we so many people showed up, you know, it was just killer. So we did you know, keggers, we did, you know, the warehouse parties, we did the uptown theater shows, and uh a little bit later after that, Chuck left the band and we I had seen Bill Westfall playing at a club down in Westport. And so I basically talked to him about coming in auditioning for the band. And that's when the bass player change happened. Uh, after that, you know, we, we just kept writing and we were so we sold all, out of all the EPs and we started writing new material. And then, uh, um, we, and then we had this manager, you know, we got him to manage us. He had lots of money. Um, he also had a friend at Atlantic, which was Jason Flom, the head of A&R. He signed Twisted Sister and Skid Row and very well known in Atlantic. He knew Jason Flom at Atlantic and Banshee was really kicking some butter on that time, man. 87, maybe mm-hmm. 88, 87, 88. Maybe I think it was maybe 88, 89. You're going to fucking love this. This sucks so fucking bad. Um, so Jason Flom, Chris gave him a, you know, talk called Jason cause they were friends. And so Chris told him about Banshee and Jason Flom was kind of interested, you know? So he came down to Kansas city to see us play. So we did a warehouse audition for him. And then we did a show up in Omaha, a big show. And he came and saw that he wanted to see a live show. Um, the funny thing is, that whole Atlanta thing ended up a nightmare. But the funny thing is Geffen Records wanted to sign us to a multi-million dollar record deal right before we signed with Atlantic. And if we had known John Kalodner, I got to hang out with John Kalodner. You know, you know who that is? I don't. It looks like a lady video, Aerosmith. 
Okay. Uh, okay. John beard. Long hair, beard. Yep. Yeah. That's John Kalodner. He's like okay. he was the shit with with Geffen. Well, I got to hang out with him and gave him a Banshee cassette, and he was with this girl that I know, and she was bragging Banshee up. So I got to hang out with him. Really nice guy. And I find out that they wanted to sign us, man, and we'd already signed with Atlantic. Ugh. Uh, <laughs> and the deal that we got signed on was i mean you know we had like a nine album six or nine album deal wow. with Atlantic, and uh this is like 1989 1990 yeah. so this is right on the cusp of of you know grunge coming in yeah and the direction we went musically was a little was different from what i wanted because we should have stayed heavy honestly we should have stayed with metal blade metal blade wanted to sign us really bad yeah, and we should have stayed with Metal Blade. We should have Chuck kept Chuck Hopkins and stayed with Metal Blade, and uh, we would have done better, I think, unless we'd gotten that Geffen deal. But uh, when we signed with Atlantic, you know, the first thing that every major label wants to do, they want to commercialize you. Mm-hmm. So they wanted a hit. They want a hit. They want a hit. And it's like, man, you know, I, I didn't give a shit about writing a hit. I just wanted to write good music, you know, good metal music, you know. And uh, so basically, you know, that was at a period where I don't think Banshee really knew what they were yet. We kind of did because of the EP. But I think everybody in the band was trying to find their direction, their image. Yeah. Everybody was striving yeah. to be in front and do their own thing, you know, and it's like, <laughs> um, so I didn't like the video. It just was so fucking atrocious, man. The shoot down the night video. It was just when I saw when I heard what they wanted to do, I was like, man, come on. You know, why do you want to do this Wizard of Oz fucking corny ass bullshit? You know, it's been done a million fucking times. But, you know, that's what the writers wanted to do. And that's what they had. And um, we were actually signed to Titanium, which is a subsidiary of Atlantic. Yep. Badlands was on Titanium and and Sabotage was on Titanium. Mm -hmm. They were all at the studio in New York when we were doing our album. So we all hung out together, you know. Atlantic signed us. We went to New York to do the record. Um, And then that's where the story gets kind of fucked up. We lost our record deal. We were blackballed from Atlantic. Nobody would touch us because of something that someone in the band did that pissed Jason Flom off. Mm. That's all I'll say. So anyway, like I said, we got dropped. We got blackballed. The name of Banshee was just fucking mud, dudes, you know, for like years, you know. And uh, there was no re- way that original lineup. I mean, we tried after that. We uh, did the, our next record, which was all material that we just had left over. And uh, we put that out. I designed the whole concept. I had the artwork done. It's called Take Out My Storm. The artist that did that is a famous L.A. tattoo artist now. He did Mike Tyson's face tat. Okay. I forget his name. Victor something is his name. He did that artwork on a giant fucking canvas. He did it on a canvas that we use for backdrops. Oh, it was cool. a giant 
tornado. And then on the side fields, there were smaller tornadoes coming in. So we used that for our stage show. And I borrowed the money from uh, a kid that I knew. He was the grandson of the Hudson Oil Company. So he was like filthy rich. He had stocks up the ass, millions of dollars. So I borrowed five grand from him, did the album cover, did all the artwork, you know, did the back to, you know, the big artwork for the background to hang up. And, you know, I did all the layout. Uh, a friend of mine did all of the layout on the CD. And, and so, you know, we played until that money was paid back. But we were just doing shows at that point. Everybody knew that the band was not going to progress or go anywhere because we were blackballed. So with that lineup at that time, there was just no way anybody was going to touch Banshee because Jason Flom put out the word to all the labels. Don't touch these guys or you're, you're going to fucking regret it. Wow. We went what, the- what year do you think that was? That was around 90, let's see, probably 92, 93. We kept the band together two or three years after, you know, after the Atlantic debacle. And, uh, and then finally, you know, we paid, we made the money to pay my friend back the five grand that we borrowed. And then we broke up. So, and by that time, everybody pretty much hated each other, you know? Yeah. Hmm. Just, just bitter paying off the bill. Exactly. And so it was just like at that point, I just wanted to fucking make the money back and, you know, get out of there, break the, break the band up. You know, I didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah. So three of so, your guys is all um, through your creation and um, getting signed and uh, with your record deal and touring. You guys were a band from Kansas City, technically, right? So right. did you guys mm-hmm. experience a lot of challenges being a Kansas City band in L.A.? Um, and New York. Banshee? Yeah. You talking about Banshee? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I don't think, not really. I mean, we never really made it out of Kansas city. We never got a major tour. We, uh, we did go to LA for Atlantic to, I mean, for uh, metal blade to, because we signed a distribution deal with metal blade. They wanted to sign us as a band, but we had already signed with Atlantic. We're getting ready to sign with Atlantic. So we just, they wanted to know if we'd do a distribution deal and they wanted to distribute crime the night. So we gave them the rights to that for five years and we went out there and, you know, did phone tags, you know, for, um, for radio stations and shit, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and signed, signed, you know, band promo pictures and shit, you know, and so that was a lot of fun. But as far as nobody really in LA knew who we were that much, you know, I mean, the record, I don't, I don't really know to this day how many copies of the record race against time we actually sold. I know we, I know metal blade sold a shitload of the crime, the night uh, albums mm-hmm. and they pretty much fucked us too. Well, not really, because they fucked us on money. I mean, they made a lot more money than they were telling us because the common knowledge in the industry is that, that you know, them, you know, Metal Blade, along with many record labels, have two sets of books. So, yeah. you know, <sighs> we got fucked, but we did re- get the rights back to Crime the Night. You were asking about that earlier, you know. I mean, yeah. Nobody, the band owns the rights. When you're in this business, man, if, if you know, you've got to have, you got to be, you you got to have nerves of steel because... We've got so many, all musicians are neurotic fucking, you know, <laughs> crazy motherfuckers. Yeah. And so uh, people are going to talk shit and they'll try to find anything they can to talk to you to try to cut you down. And that's, you know, you were talking about LA and or in LA, New York. We never really made it that far. Um, we had a great following in Kansas City, of course. But at the same time, the thing about Kansas City was it was musically immature. And what I mean by that is bands, 
we're not didn't get behind each other and look at it as, you know, like, hey, man, you know, we're from Kansas City. Let's band together like they did in L.A. You know, you had bands in L.A. on the streets selling tickets for each other's shows. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, in Kansas City, like everybody had an ego problem or, or they like were upset because you were doing better Compact. than them. So they wanted to talk. You know, and, yeah. and, and I and, specifically you know. just a, just a quick a quick story on that. I remember specifically one time we were at Swell Park at a Grimace thing right and grimace was playing and we had a good time and it was afterwards and we were all just standing around just talking shit and drinking and whatever and the dudes from foxy foxy pulled up and were like talking talking shit right and we were like fuck you get out of here we don't want to talk to you fucking posers you know and it was just like it was but but there was very but there was very much that tribal vibe in kc right Right. you were you were with this group or you supported right. this band. Right. And, and that was, and so I see your point a hundred percent that, you know, in LA, it was oh. like, Hey, we need to all make it. So let's help each other. And that wasn't, right. a, that wasn't the scene. I mean, we shared a practice hall with those guys, you know, we let them share our hall with us. So, yeah. you know, I mean, and it's like, you know, the minute they'd leave, they'd start talking shit about us, you know, and I did get back to us and it's like, man, you know, really, I don't yeah. really give a shit, man. <laughs> You no, know, it was just all jealousy, you know, and we weren't, you know, we were, we tried to help bands, you know, we tried to help up and coming bands by giving them opening slots for us because, you know, we always had great crowds. So we thought, you know, Hey man, let's help them out. And, you know, we'd even try to pay them, you know, back then, you know, I mean, it's actually, you know, we were making better money back then than, <laughs> yeah. you know, so we would pay bands, you know, give them a couple hundred bucks, you know, and they were happy and they were happy for the exposure, mm-hmm. but you know, you've always got, like you said, your clicks and you're it's competition man musicians are just like that it's the nature of the musician man yep well um, i think this takes us up to about what 1990 ish 1991 90, um, yeah just well, starting to hit our album our race against time was released in 1990 and our video came out on halloween night on headbangers ball oh nice i wow. think that was around 1990 and then like i said the, the you know the whole breakup thing happened after we lost our deal and then we played for a few more years so around 93 is that you know when we officially broke up okay so so 93 so right around the start of grunge and uh kind of a change from metal to this new style of music right exactly we were right on the edge of that happening and uh that wasn't the reason you know that we lost our deal but um you know, if we'd stayed heavy and stayed with Metal Blade, I think we would have probably had a, we would have been treated better. We would have had better, probably just as good a distribution. We actually might have gotten some tour support. And, uh, but, you know, by the time any of that could have happened with Atlantic, we were already blackballed. So, you know, we knew that wasn't going to happen. As a matter of fact, it reached a point where we were just sitting there and they weren't doing anything with us. So we had to hire an attorney to get out of our contract with Atlantic oh. because hmm. Jason was so pissed. He just wanted to hold on to us and not do shit. He basically wanted to let us know you guys aren't going to do shit and I'm not going to do shit for you. And I'm, we're going to just sit here and kill time. So I have a, I have a little side question on that. So in, in that period. So, so when you were, you were talking about your, your upcoming and where you were and what you were, you, you were all, you know, early, early, early Judas Priest, black leather and spikes, that kind of thing. Right. And so when you guys got signed, did you feel like they pushed you into the quote unquote hair metal vibe? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what happened. They were pushing us to write something commercial, write something hitty, you know, 
about and, yeah well exactly they wanted that too but uh we uh we first start working they, they put us in the studio in kansas city and they brought sam ginsburg down who's a producer he did a couple of aerosmith albums i don't know which ones uh but that didn't work out and he didn't really get us and you know, know what we were all about. I don't think we even knew. And then uh, they brought Eddie Kramer down from, you know, famous Eddie Kramer. Yes, Van Halen. Yeah, exactly. Led Zeppelin, Jimi Hendrix. Yep. yep. So we got to work with him in the studio and we did two songs with him and he helped us. He helped us with, actually, he came down to help us prep for the record. And we also did a couple of demos. One was Desire and a song called The Spell. And if you want to know your question regarding your question, if you want to know what happened, listen to those two songs. Okay. Desire. Not probably my least favorite Banshee song. I hate that fucking song, man. (laughs) (laughs) Such a pussy ass tune. Um, I just, you know, that's not the direction I wanted to go in. That's not the direction. And that's, that's kind of where we headed just because, you know, that's what we thought they wanted. Yeah. Right. So we were trying to give them what they wanted and uh, still kind of stay heavy and retain some of our, you know, roots. But, but uh, I think that, uh, I, I think that, um, that definitely shows in your later stuff after all that, the stuff you put out recently, right. Since 2012 oh. and on is much, much more, heavy metal to the core like 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 it should be and it's it's good stuff and 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 that was a discussion we kind of had pre talking to you was so many bands got pushed into that genre because that's what was selling right Right. And, and we and we actually and we actually to our last episode was on hair metal bands and we talked about a lot of those bands uh def leppard the scorpions and those those kind of bands that were good metal bands were pushed mm-hmm. into that hair metal ballad writing genre because that's what sold. Right. And, right. and, right. and definitely those, those years are not some of their best work. I mean, you know, like with the Scorpions love it for sting for, to me is a metal album. After yeah, that, right. after, after that, they got very commercial. I will always love the Scorpions because, you know, Homeland yeah. German boys, but right. it's like, it's like some of the music suffered because of the direction the record companies right. moved the band. And it was right. like, yeah. this is just, this is just MTV yeah, garbage. Well, mm. Yeah. And then you hear the song, you know, some of those Scorpions tunes, you heard them so many times on the radio yeah. that you just wanted to puke. You know? It's yeah. like, enough, <laughs> yeah. man. I don't want to get yeah. But uh, yeah, they wanted, you know, Atlantic wanted to push us in a more commercial direction. I understand that, you know, yeah. um, but they really, I don't think, like I said, it all goes back to when we got signed. I think Jason really, you know, he saw the potential in the band, but he saw a band that he could mold and try to give him what he wanted, what his vision for the band was. Yeah. Uh, and, and then it's just weird because, you know, everybody kind of started doing their, you know, I always said that Tommy was like Vince Neil's body with Dio's voice. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know what I mean? It's like, yep. and, and he's striving to try to do this sex symbol thing, but it's like, you don't have a sex symbol voice, you know, yeah. you've got a metal voice. Yeah. You know, yep. you're not, not a fucking steel heart or a death or whatever, you know, you don't have a commercial voice. And so that's kind of where things started getting really weird, you know, because I wanted to stay heavy, you know, I, w- I would have been happy with staying with metal blade, but you know, when you get a record deal from Atlantic, you know, you're, like, you're going to do, 
you're going to do whatever they want because you're on a fucking Atlantic records, you know? Yeah, of course. Um, so if we would have known then what we know now, things would have been much different. If we just I, waited a month time with Atlantic, you know, we might, we might've been with Geffen instead or metal blade. Who knows? Wow. Well, on that, on that point, um, you know, you mentioned you were blackballed because I was curious, why weren't you able to go back to your contact at Geffen or back to Brian Slagle at Metal Blade and, um, you know, continue the, the Banshee project the way you foresaw it? Well, it's because Jason, Jason was so powerful in the industry. He was one of the biggest names in the industry, man. He had a lot oh. of clout. You know, and those guys are all connected. You know what I mean? It's mm. like a back then it was like a web of, con, you know, favor. Yeah. You know, you work. This, I'll do this for you, blah, blah, blah. Whatever it is that you do, what you did back then to put out the, the, yeah. And you make, you make a phone call and it just goes out, you know, to everybody. We went to LA to the concrete convention, like 94, 93, 94. And we handed out 50 fucking promo packs, man. And nobody, we didn't get one fucking call back. Mm. And I, I kicked myself in the ass because I was on the elevator with Gene Simmons and his wife. And I was just so fucking freaked out to be on an elevator with Gene Simmons. I was like, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I should have been thinking, man, this motherfucker, I need to get a number and give him a promo pack. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I didn't. And I wish I had, but, uh, cause I know he has a record label and he was signing bands, but you know, like I said, man, I think we were pretty much fucked because nobody would touch us. And when you hand out 50 promo packs to every major label out there and they all fucking say no, you know what I mean? So that's what happened. And, and, uh, so the band broke up, like I said, in 94. So were you guys individually, like, were you not able just to say, okay, Banshee's done. I'm going to go play guitar elsewhere and, you know, look for fortune and glory elsewhere. Um, yeah, I could have done that, but you know what, man, it's like, by the time it ended, I was so tired of it. Just the bullshit, you know what I mean? And the, yeah. the business and just how fucked up it was. I, I didn't really even want to do it, you know? Yeah. That makes and, sense. Uh, I think also, you know, I'd always been in a band and always done music and I kind of needed some time to myself to kind of live my life. And, mm-hmm. you know, I moved out of my parents' house for the first time and lived on my own. And, and, uh, you know, you, I think everybody goes through a period where they want to just find yourself, you know? And yeah. I think I did yeah. that. I did it a little later in life. Cause I think I was like 20. Actually I was, See, I was like, I was, that was, I would have been like 32, 33. Okay. But that was young back then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially when you look younger than your age. But, uh, uh, you know, I moved out and I just didn't want anything to do with music for a long time. So I went out and fucked up, you know, like everybody does probably. Because, you know, I just lost, got out, gotten out of, the band broke up at the same time I lost a seven year relationship. So, you know, think about it, man. You want to go and drown your sorrows and, and, that's what I did. <laughs> right. Yeah. Listen, 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 listen to, listen to steel heart and get fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I hear you, man. But we did a couple of reunion shows, you know, Banshee did too, which I'm sure you guys will probably want to get to, but yeah. And let me ask you about just the name itself. Banshee. It's such an awesome name for a band. Um, when you guys were not active, were there other bands that, that took that name did you have to fight for that name or any for any reason um, there 
there was a speed metal band in Italy. Okay. Oh, Banshee. And they got pretty big from what I hear. Um, uh, of course, there was Susie and the Banshees, which we'd always get confused. Right. By, yeah. Mainly from people's mothers. You know, say, <laughs> are you in that band, Susie and the Banshees? <laughs> no. No, Susie. We were sitting around trying to think of a name, and a friend of ours actually came up with it. Um, you guys remember Bob Bloodsoe from Unique Clothing? Sounds familiar. He had a little shop down in Westport. He it was he had the splatter pa- painted walls. That was kind of his trademark. Okay, splatter painted walls. You know, but uh, he uh, he did the whole clothing thing. He worked out of Seventh Heaven for a long time in the basement. Okay, and he did rock he did rock clothing for all the bands in Kansas City, and um, he, he made, did a lot of those like gauntlets, right? Like the 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 leather and the studs and all right. that. Sold them through Seventh Heaven, right? There was doing customizing stuff, you know? Right, and, yeah, uh, yep. Yeah, he, he made a good living doing that. Then he, he moved out of there and had a shop, at, two, two shops in Westport, one right next to the Lone Star and another one off Westport Road. Uh, he left there and went to the one next to the Lone Star. And, uh, yeah, I remember some good times, man. I remember locked in there one night with Bon Jovi. He brought him in to buy clothes, and uh, we were hanging out with those guys, man. It was cool. Wow. And uh, that's when he bought a military jacket that Tommy made. Tommy wore it, I think, at one show, and Bon Jovi bought it. Oh, damn. Yeah, I think he only paid like 300 bucks for it. Tommy could have got a lot more. <laughs> right, right. You're, you're fucking Bon Jovi. You got more than $300. <laughs> I know. I know shit. That's what I said. But Bon Jovi wore that jacket, man, a lot. It's like he's in Hip Parader, all the magazines. There are pictures of him with that, that, that jacket. So Tommy was pretty proud of that. I think he kicked himself in the ass for selling it. But, right. You know. It was cool. Nice. Yeah. So uh, I don't even know where we were going with that story, but that's no, good. Oh, the, name, no. the name, the name. Yeah. Bob, Bob Bledsoe came up with the name. Okay. Yeah. That's it's a great, great name, great name. And especially, you know, um, we want you that opening riff and then that opening howl, just right. so good. You know, it just all comes together so nicely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, you know, I mean, we had kind of a magic, you know, that was just clicked. Um, that, 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 that's what's that's what's really frustrating about you know that early that the the current the night ep is really really good and you guys got a lot yeah. of traction on that and then shit just went sideways right and and that's yeah. and that sucks because i again you know it was we'll cover this in a minute but i think it was it was a little easier back then because you just weren't competing in the same amount of space you compete now where everybody can oh, have a band yeah. and and, exactly. and and that it just kind of you know it kind of sucks and then you know all being Kansas City natives we like to see our people thrive right i mean we we were even right. happy we were even happy when puddle of mud made it and we really don't like them that yeah. much so right. <laughs> so yeah. it's 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 it's, it's shitty that it went that way but you know it's it's awesome that you're still making the music you want to yeah. make instead of somebody telling you to make it right yeah that's true and that's why you know i mean in 2012 you know that's when i decided you know there was there was just so much the demand you know for people i did a thing in kansas city uh it was a grand max reunion show we did at some clubs or some little theater and uh, Chuck Hopkins showed up, the old bass player, you know, that did the EP. Mm-hmm. He's the original bass player for Banshee. And we start talking, man. And 
I, I just decided, I said, well, why, why the fuck not do it? I'll do a new, new Banshee record and see if he wants to play bass. So he loved the idea and, and he decided to finance the whole thing. Oh, nice. So, yeah, he played bass on the 2012 record and uh, the Rocklahoma thing, I know I jumped there, but the Rocklahoma thing was kind of a nightmare in itself. Um, we I played well. You know, that's all I know. Yeah. Right. That's what matters. Anybody else. I was kicking ass. Everybody yeah. else was fucking sucking. Well, <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, you know, that let's just put it that way. That's an important date because that's when I realized that I could never play with Tommy again. Oh. Because oh. when I went to Kansas City and the four or five weeks I spent at his house, I thought, man, you know, I, you, I just thought, man, after so many years, I thought, man, maybe he's changed, you know. And so that's when I just realized, man, I can't fucking do this anymore. And the Oklahoma, the Rocklahoma show was just such a fucking nightmare, you know, and I spent like 10 grand fucking Damn. put it together and do it. And, uh, I still haven't made all that money back. So, uh, that's when I just said, fuck this man. And when I saw, when I saw Chuck and I forget, it was around 2011. Yeah, it was around 2011. I, I saw Chuck and he wanted to do the new Banshee record with me. I was like, fuck, let's do it. And it just kind of fell into place because I had a friend in Louisiana who heard about this song, this is the singer named George call that was in a band called Aska. And I heard George, I was like, Holy fuck, that guy fucking can sing, man. I said, God damn, you hear that guy singing some Banshee. And so I got a hold of George and we did some negotiating and him and Chuck did some negotiating. And, you know, at that time he was a singer for hot, you know, for, for pay, you know, we paid him rather handsomely to do that record. But after he did it, you know, he dug the band so much, he wanted to continue, you know, and continue singing for the band. And you mentioned something, Matthew, about, um, or you, you'd mentioned it too, Roland, about the new material being heavier. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so what I wanted to do was I wanted to do the next record that we should have done after the EP. Okay. And that's yeah. what I thought with, with, you know, with, uh, with, uh, mind slave and so i wanted it to be heavy i wanted it to be fucking awesome dude you know and it's like so that's kind of what that album was all about and like i said there was a lot of anger a lot of frustration a lot of shit on there you know in those lyrics that that i wanted to say because i was just so pissed off you know about yeah. at certain people and i don't want to harp on that because i don't want to sound like a negative person but you know that's where the inspiration came from that record hey man pain uh, pain makes beautiful art you know yeah, well, there's a song called King of Nothing, and I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> That's one of my favorite songs, man. Yeah, we had some orchestration in this on that record, you know? So we had a, a chick came in. This chick came in. She played uh, violin for Mannheim Steamroller. This girl was so fucking cool, and uh, she came in and played violin and did like – she did like cello parts playing her violin, you know, little cello stabs that sound like a cello, but it's actually her violin. Nice. Uh, at the beginning of King of Nothing, she did that. And then she played, there's a breakdown part in the Dio tribute song that we did. The Legend Lost.
kind of like Pink Floyd. She did all that. And so, yeah, that album was fucking awesome, man. And, you know, we, we turned a lot of heads with it and it's still to this day, it was never picked up by anybody. It's not in major distribution anywhere. Hmm. So, you know what, man, I didn't do it for that. I mean, by 2012, you know, it's like with the industry changing everything, I, I didn't do it because I expected, I tried to wonder to be a rock star or be famous. You know, that's, that went out the window a long time ago. You know, I just wanted to do some music for the fans, you know, who wanted to hear some new shit. It's Terry, like, for that album, if people want to go purchase that, where, where can people still get that music? Uh, the new record? I mean, the yeah. 2012 record? Mm-hmm. Mind's Life? Any of them, uh, really. Where's the best place that people can go to get uh, some of Banshee's music? Well, uh, Double Trouble uh, is with Steve Sussman on Facebook. He's managing the band right now. Okay. He's been selling all that stuff. He just came out with some killer... Fuck, I wish I had one in here. I showed it to you. We've got these picture disc vinyls. So we've got the artwork for My, My Slave on vinyl. And then there's chains on the back. And nice. uh, the, the artwork for that was done by a artist in France named Constantine. Oh, fuck, what's his last name? Constantine, I forget his last name, but he was just fucking incredible, man. And then he also did the artwork on the new record. He had one piece of artwork left that he was selling, and it was that picture, you know, the guy screaming. Mm-hmm. And it kind of fit in. Artistically, it fit in with the with taken by a fuck with Mind Slave. So I we bought it from him, like the 200 bucks, you know, and we used it for the new record. Um so that was cool. Oh, Constantine Sanguine is his name. But he quit, he quit drawing, you know, it's weird. He sold a bunch of fucking artwork and made a fortune, and he just he's not doing hmm. that anymore, he's doing something else. Uh, yeah, you can get them from Steve Sussman. Uh, if if he doesn't have any, I can probably you know I can send you guys at least a copy. Right. You know, and we'll 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 get that info. We'll get that information and we'll post it on the uh, okay. the sites if anybody wants to reach out and pick up pick up a copy. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, cool. I'll send you. Okay, so then, so, go with um, yeah. I was just going to say. So really, then we had talked earlier about how the '90s kind of you know, the, the metal kind of fizzled out a little bit because of the, the grunge. And then we got that new metal, but right. that really wasn't the reason Banshee um, sort of fell apart. It was, it was more internal and label issues, huh? Yeah, it was, okay. uh, yeah. The, you know, I mean, it was because of the blackballing because of Jason getting pissed. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, no, who knows what would have happened if we'd stay with the label. honestly, I think it probably would have ended badly anyway. Yeah. Okay. Um, but who knows? It's yeah. hard to say. I can't. And, and, it's not, and, and it, sound, it sounds that way because it sounds like at that point, your heart wasn't really in it, right? You were just doing it because you had to. Or burnt out. Yeah. Well, I think at it, it, the, Atlantic, the Atlantic record point, I was excited as fuck, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. After that, yeah. After yeah. what ha- everything that happened and we got you know, blackballed, I knew that Banshee wasn't going to get signed again. And like I said, we tried for two or three years to keep going. And it just, like I said, we couldn't get signed. Nobody would touch us. So yeah, I was burned out at that point. I just wanted to stop it, you know? And you mentioned that, um, you know, you guys recorded the record, but you really didn't get any, any tour support. You didn't really go out on any big tours or anything like that. We were, uh, it's weird. We were, I was down in Texas. I had, I'd, I'd gotten a guitar endorsement deal with Charvel Jackson. 
So me and Bill were down in Texas at the factory picking out some, some cool guitars, which was really cool. You know, and but while we were down there, I guess our manager was trying to get a hold of one of us because Atlantic had a tour date set up with for us with Motley Crue. Okay. And evidently he couldn't get a hold of anybody because you know I didn't there were no cell phones, right? You know, yeah. then so I didn't know he was trying to get a hold of us and he couldn't get a hold of Tommy, so we got lost the that opportunity. So we almost did some tour dates. Now one the one thing we did do, we went on a fucking a fucking moron from hell tour that our manager set up for us. I'm sure you can figure out who I'm talking about. He's a moron. <laughs> um, he set this fucking tour up in the dead of winter. Mm. North. Oh, yeah, no. All the no, northern states. It's cold as fuck and snowing, man. Minnesota, fucking Wisconsin. <laughs> you know, who fucking sends your, your band after fucking, you know, to Wisconsin in the dead of winter? Yeah, so I got I have a question. So where the band today, obviously, obviously you put out some new music. You put out your latest album in 2018, is that right? Um 2019. 2019, okay. 2019, 2019. Um so what after after all that you've gone through and told us and all the trials and trouble, it seems like you're in a good place. Where where's Banshee today and what do you see the future of Banshee being like? Oh, wow. Well, um, we just put out a a record. It's been a little over a year. I think it was like the end of 2019, early 2020, uh, called The Madness. And that record was, oh, shit, I broke my guitar. Um, That (laughs) record was basically about drug addiction, about depression, uh, things that me, actually me and Steve had gone through in our life. I used to really suffer from serious depression, man. And I got it under control finally, you know, and, uh, good, but you know, it, yeah, it sucks, man. When you're that depressed and you just don't want to fucking live, man. Yeah. It sucks. So I got all that out of the way and, but we kind of put that into the record. So it's not like I try to make conceptual records, but I have to have something to inspire me as far as the future of Banshee. I think really it's just to try to put out a better record than the last two. Nice. You know, and hopefully, but hopefully it's something. And that's, that's why we kind of dabbled in these, these concepts, you know, the conceptual part of it, you know, uh, there's a little acoustic song on the new record called psychosis. That's mm-hmm. really, it's dark, but man, if anybody, any of you guys have ever been depressed, listen to that song in a dark room, man. And it will send it'll fucking put goosebumps on you, man, because it's just fucking, it's just a killer fucking little tune. My wasted years I fight back bitter tears Will I ever find my way I'm waiting on a better day for me and you It seems I have I lost my voice 
so that's kind of what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to get inspired right now. And I'm just trying to do the next record that, and hopefully it's going to be good music. Everybody can dig, you know, like I said, the, 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 you know, the new album, I, I wasn't, like I said, I was sick when we were making it. So I was kind of disappointed in, in the production. And, uh, but like I said, the songs are still there and the concept there that I think is important. It's an yeah. important mm-hmm. message people can relate to. And I've had a lot of people emailing me and thanking me and saying, man, you know, nobody's ever really done a record about depression, you know, the way you guys have a metal band and singing songs about it, you know? And, and uh, so that made me feel really good. So I guess maybe I'm just waiting, waiting for the next thing to inspire me, you know, but I'm still writing right now. I'm working on ideas, but like I said, writer's block is a, is a really fucked up thing because you just, when you, you know, if you guys are musicians, like I think you said, you, you, you all play, you all yeah. play something. Well, then, you know, if you write, then, you know, you can go through, you know, and it's not like when I was depressed, it seemed like I was more creative then. Hmm. You know? And then when I start taking fucking antidepressants and shit, man, it kind of dulls everything, you know, it takes it, but it takes the depression away. But yeah. I also think it kind of fucks with your creativity a little bit, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So, I mean, I some, of, some of that, some of that comes out of madness, right? I mean, uh, and especially yeah. the genre of music. I mean, metal right. music is about darker yeah. subjects most of the time. Yeah. And, and that, yeah, that was madness. as a, and as a kid, that was always, that was always how I got through that shit. Right. I was like, right. I would listen right. to, you know, yeah, fade, fade, fade to black or, you know, Slayer or yeah. whatever. And, you know, now the heavier bands hate breed and stuff like that, that just get me, yeah. amped like i can make it through right. this shit fuck you i'm armored up and let's yeah. do it you know right. so so it, yeah. the, the music that's, comes that's, from that right you need to you know if you can write music that moves people or they get something out of it it's not about trying to be the the, the best band or writing the best commercial song or selling the most records to me it comes down to just writing something that first of all is from your heart that you, you know, everything I write, I have to like it. I try to write stuff that I just, that I like first and that I, I think other people are going to really like. And that's just what I've always done. And um, hopefully, you know, like I said, something, we're hoping that within the next three months we have a new record out. I don't know what it's going to be called. I don't know anything about it. Um, I know that Steve Sussman, our manager, has helped us write lyrics on the last record. And uh, he really helped really his input was, was awesome, you know, on the record. So nice. Um, I don't know. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. All right. Well, awesome. Um, this has been epic, dude. I mean, yeah, really, really, it. really just really a great, a great, I, for our first interview, fucking couldn't be better. <laughs> Could not well, be I'm better. So happy, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Very, very, cool. very, very cool. All right. So um, everybody uh, check out, Check out Banshee. We will post some information where you can get in touch to get more music. Uh, we also have uh, they have several albums on Apple Music that I found, so go check those out. Um, if you can get a hold of the Cry in the Night EP, that thing is fucking amazing. So pick that up. And uh, Terry, again, I'll thank you. Thank you. YouTube. Yeah, see what you can find. And uh, th- thanks for thanks for joining us. Thanks for taking time out of your day and your schedule to, to talk, okay. talk to us and share all your shit. And, uh, hey, no problem, the, be- the best of luck to you. And- quick, man. I wish we had more time. <laughs> no, we can. Hey, hey man, when you put that, when you put the next album out, we'll do a follow-up. Absolutely. Hey, Absolutely. Great. A review. That sounds we, great, man. We can, we can do a well, review and follow-up and you can talk about it and love it. Yeah. So, um, awesome, man. Totally awesome. So, 
everybody check us uh check us out on all the on all the podcasts apple music uh fucking what else are we on spotify and soundcloud and this will be yeah. my <laughs> and don't don't fucking don't fucking judge me douchebag the, um, no judging here is a judge free zone man <laughs> no i'm so I'm, I'm star i'm starstruck dude i'm fucking not talking to you jackoffs <laughs> there's an actual dude here so so All the, right, brother All right. so uh anyway everybody uh we hope you enjoyed this episode thanks again to terry for joining us and good luck to banshee and good luck to you in the future and one we thing will, we forgot. go ahead no, man, you didn't forget. oh oh yeah you're right Hey, Terry, before we close the show, how about a little guitar? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck yeah. Where right. was that guitar? <laughs> All right, everybody. Just remember, stay fucking metal. <laughs>